loose change, ripe peaches, and a lackluster portrait of a ballerina. This week on Selected Shorts, fiction about what we need to survive and how we go about getting it. Join us. I am Roxane Gay, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Before we jump into the stories, I'd like to introduce myself to listeners who may not know me. First and foremost, I am a writer. You might be familiar with my books Bad Feminist or Hunger, or maybe you've read one of my opinion pieces or my work friend column in the New York Times. But in addition to a memoir and countless essays, I've written a novel, short stories, and even comic books like Marvel's World of Wakanda. I'm also a professor, an editor with my own publishing imprint, Roxanne Gay Books, and an array of other things, too. In short, I'm pretty busy, and in all of that busyness, you might correctly deduce that I've got some survival skills. In fact, I often say my superpower is my ability to endure. For a long time, I was quite proud of my survival skills, my resilience. But then I started to ask myself why I have dealt with so many circumstances that demanded endurance. I don't have any grand conclusions, but all things considered, I am grateful I know how to get through a crisis without losing too much of myself. And this idea, survival skills, is what we'll be examining in this episode of Selected Shorts. In one short story, a well-off Londoner has a strange encounter in an art gallery, one that might allow her to repay an old family debt. In the other tale, a poor woman takes a risk in order to provide for her family and find some self-reliance, too. Both of these stories involve chance meetings with strangers and some sort of economic proposition. But more than that, these stories are about how we make the best of difficult circumstances. Also, not for nothing, there is ice cream, classic Ford galaxies, and alluring portraits of David Beckham along the way. Our first story, Loose Change, is by the groundbreaking and luminous writer Andrea Levy. Levy was born in the UK, a child of Jamaican immigrants. Her work often reflected her personal and cultural history in titles including Never Far From Nowhere, The Long Song, and the award-winning Small Island. Though she died in 2019, Levy left her indelible mark by chronicling the hopes and fears of families in Britain's Windrush generation. Reading the story is Eve Best, an accomplished actor who has appeared in series including Stan Lee's Lucky Man and Nurse Jackie, and in films such as The King's Speech. Now, here's Loose Change by Andrea Levy. I'm not in the habit of making friends of strangers. I'm a Londoner. Not even little grey-haired old ladies passing comment on the weather can shame a response from me. I'm a Londoner. Aloof sweats from my pores. But I was in a bit of a predicament. My period was two days early and I was caught unprepared. I'd just gone into the National Portrait Gallery to get out of the cold. It had begun to feel, as I'd walked through the bleak streets, like acid was being thrown at my exposed skin. My fingers were numb. Searching in my purse for change for the tampon machine, I barely felt the pull of the zip. 
but I didn't have any coins. I was forced to ask in a loud voice in this small lavatory, has anyone got three 20 pence pieces? Everyone seemed to leave the place at once. <laughs> All of them Londoners, I was sure of it. Only she was left, fixing her hair in the mirror. Do you have change? She turned round slowly as I held out a £10 note. She had the most spectacular eyebrows. I could see the lines of black hair, like magnetised iron filings, tumbling across her eyes and almost joining above her nose. I must have been staring to recall them so clearly. She had wide black eyes and a round face with such a solid jawline that she looked to have taken a gentle whack from Tom and Jerry's cartoon frying pan. She dug into the pocket of her jacket and pulled out a bulging handful of money. It was coppers, mostly. Some of it tinkled onto the floor. But she had change. Too much. I didn't want a bag full of the stuff myself. Have you a five-pound note as well? I asked. She dropped the coins onto the basin area, spreading them out into the soapy bubbles of water that were lying there. Then she said, You look... She had an accent, but I couldn't tell then where it was from. I thought maybe Spain. Is this all you've got? I asked. She nodded. Well, look, let me just take this now. I picked up three damp coins out of the pile. And then I'll get some change in the shop and pay them back to you. Her gaze was as keen as a cat with string. Do you understand? Only I don't want all these coins. Yes, she said softly. I was grateful. I took the money. But when I emerged from the cubicle, the girl and her handful of change were gone. I found her again staring at the portrait of Darcy Bustle. Her head was inclining from one side to the other as if the painting were a dress she might soon try on for size. I approached her about the money, but she just said, This is good picture. Was it my explanation left dangling, or the fact that she liked the dreadful painting that caused my mouth to gape? <laughs> really? You like it? I said. She doesn't look real. She looks like... Her eyelids fluttered sleepily as she searched for the right word. A dream. That particular picture always reminded me of the doodles girls drew in their rough books at school. You don't like? she asked. I shrugged. You show me one you like, she said. As I mentioned before, I'm not in the habit of making friends of strangers. But there was something about this girl. Her eyes were encircled with dark shadows so that even when she smiled, introducing herself cheerfully as Layla, they remained as mournful as a glum kid at a party. I took this fraternization as defeat, but I had to introduce her to a better portrait. Alan Bennett, with his mysterious little brown bag, didn't impress her at all. She preferred the photograph of Beckham. Jermaine Greer made her top lip curl. And as for A.S. Byatt, she laughed out loud. This is child, make this! <laughs> we were almost making a scene. Layla couldn't keep her voice down and people were beginning to watch us. I wanted to be released from my obligation. Look... Let me buy us both a cup of tea, I said. Then I can give you back your money. She brought out her handful of change again as we sat down at a table. 
eagerly passing it across to me to take some for the tea. No, I'll get this, I said. Her money jangled like a win on a slot machine as she tipped it back into her pocket. When I got back with the tea, I pushed over the 20 pences I owed her. She began playing with them on the tabletop, pushing one around the other two in a figure of eight. Suddenly, she leant towards me, as if there was a conspiracy between us, and said, I like art. <laughs> with that announcement, a light briefly came on in those dull eyes to reveal that she was no more than 18. A student, perhaps. Where are you from, I asked. Uzbekistan, she said. Was that the Balkans? I wasn't sure. Where is that? She licked her finger, then with great concentration drew an outline on the tabletop. This is Uzbekistan, she said. She licked her finger again to carefully plop a wet dot onto the map, saying, And I come from here, Tashkent. And where is all this? I said, indicating the area around the little map with its slowly evaporating borders and town. She screwed up her face as if to say nowhere. Are you on holiday? I asked. She nodded. How long are you here for? Leaning her elbows on the table, she took a sip of her tea. Ech, it's bitter, she said. Well, put some sugar in it, I said, pushing the sugar sachets towards her. She was reluctant. Is for free? she asked. Yes, take one. The sugar spilled as she clumsily opened the packet. I laughed it off, but she, with the focus of a prayer, put her cup up to the edge of the table and swept the sugar into it with the side of her hand. The rest of the detritus that was on the tabletop fell into the tea as well. Some crumbs, a tiny scrap of paper, and a curly black hair floated on the surface of her drink. I felt sick as she put the cup back to her mouth. Pour that one away, I'll get you another one. Just as I said that, a young boy arrived at our table and stood, legs astride, before her. He pushed down the hood on his padded coat. His head was curious, flat as a cardboard cutout, with hair stuck to his sweaty forehead in black curlicues. And his face was as doggedly determined as two fists raised. They began talking in whatever language it was they spoke. Layla's tone pleading, the boys aggrieved. Layla took the money from her pocket and held it up to him. She slapped his hand away when he tried to wrest all the coins from her palm. And then, as abruptly as he had appeared, he left. Layla called something after him. Everyone turned to stare at her except the boy, who just carried on. Who was that? With the teacup resting on her lip, she said, My brother, he wants to know where we sleep tonight. Oh yes, where's that? I was rummaging through the contents of my bag for a tissue, so it was casually asked. It's square, where we have slept before. Oh, which hotel is it? I thought of the Russell Hotel that was on a square with uniformed attendants, bed-turning-down facilities, old-world style. She was picking the curly black hair off her tongue when she said, No hotel, just the square. <laughs>
It was then I began to notice things I had not seen before. Dirt under each of her chipped fingernails. The collar of her blouse, crumpled and unironed. A tiny cut on her cheek, a fringe that looked to have been cut with blunt nail clippers. I found a tissue and used it to wipe my sweating palms. How do you mean, just in the square? We sleep out in the square, she said. It was so simple she spread her hands as if to suggest the lie of her bed. Outside? She nodded. Tonight? Yes. The memory of the bitter cold still tingled at my fingertips as I said, Why? It took her no more than two breaths to tell me the story. She and her brother had had to leave their country, Uzbekistan, when their parents, who were journalists, were arrested. It was arranged very quickly. Friends of their parents acquired passports for them and put them onto a plane. They had been in England for three days, but they knew no one here. This country was just a safe place. Now all the money they had could be lifted in the palm of a hand to a stranger in a toilet. So they were sleeping rough in the shelter of a square covered in blankets on top of some cardboard. At the next table, a woman was complaining loudly that there was too much froth on her coffee. Her companion was relating the miserable tale of her daughter's attempt to get into publishing. What did they think about the strange girl sitting opposite me? Nothing. Only I knew what a menacing place Layla's world had become. She'd lost a tooth. I noticed the ugly gap when she smiled at me, saying, I love London. She had sought me out, sifted me from the crowd. This young woman was desperate for help. She'd even, cunningly, made me obliged to her. I have picture of Tower Bridge at home on wall, although I have not seen yet. But why me? I had my son to think of. Why pick on a single mother with a young son? We haven't got the time. Those two women at the next table with their matching handbags and shoes, they did nothing but lunch. Why hadn't she approached them instead? From little girl, I always want to see it, she went on. I didn't know anything about people in her situation. Didn't they have to go somewhere? Croydon, was it? Couldn't she have gone to the police or some charity? My life was hard enough without this stranger tramping through it. She smelt of mildewed washing. Imagine her dragging that awful stink into my kitchen, cupping her filthy hands round my bone china, smearing my white linen, her big face with its pantomime eyebrows leering over my son, slumping onto my sofa and kicking off her muddy boots as she yanked me down into her particular hell. How would I ever get rid of her? You know where is Tower Bridge? Perhaps there was something tender-hearted in my face. When my grandma first came to England from the Caribbean, she lived through days as lonely and cold as an open grave. The story she told all her grandchildren was about the stranger who woke her while she was sleeping in a doorway and offered her a warm bed for the night. It was this act of benevolence that kept my grandmother alive. She was convinced of it. 
her good Samaritan. Is something wrong? the girl asked. Now my grandmother talks with passion about scrounging refugees, those asylum seekers who can't even speak the language, storming the country and making it difficult for everyone else. Last week, she began, her voice quivering, I was in home. This was embarrassing. I couldn't turn the other way. The girl was staring straight at me. This day, Friday, she went on, I cooked fish for my mother and brother. The whites of her eyes were becoming soft and pink. She was going to cry. This day, Friday, I am here in London, she said, and I worry I will not see my mother again. Only a savage would turn away when it was merely kindness that was needed. I resolved to help her. I had three warm bedrooms, one of them empty. I would make her dinner. Fried chicken or maybe poached fish in wine. I would run her a bath filled with bubbles. Wrap her in thick towels heated on a rail. I would then hunt down some warm clothes and after I had put my son to bed, I would make her cocoa. We would sit and talk. I would let her tell me all that she had been through, wipe her tears, and assure her that she was now safe. I would phone a colleague from school and ask him for advice. Then in the morning, I would take Layla to wherever she needed to go. And before we said goodbye, I would press my phone number into her hand. All Layla's grandchildren would know my name. Her nose was running with snot. She pulled down the sleeve of her jacket to drag it across her face and said, I must find my brother. I didn't have any more tissues. I'll get you something to wipe your nose, I said. I got up from the table. She watched me, frowning, the tiny hairs of her eyebrows locking together like Velcro. I walked to the counter where serviettes were lying in a neat pile. I picked up four. Then, standing straight, I walked on. Not back to Layla, but up the stairs to the exit. I pushed through the revolving doors and threw myself into the cold. That was Eve Best performing Loose Change by Andrea Levy. I'm Roxane Gay. Though the narrator doesn't share the refugee's sense of desperation, she has her own survival tactics. When doubt creeps in, she talks herself out of heroism and maintains the status quo by making a hasty exit. A lot of my own work examines the ever-widening gulf between privilege and poverty. As a child, my parents would take my brothers and I back to Haiti, where they're from, 
It was always a grand adventure, but it was also humbling to come to understand the circumstances from which they rose, and to understand, to some extent, how absolute and unrelenting poverty can be, how it was merely luck that afforded me the privilege of a safe home, running water, food on the table. As I got older, I also came to understand that privilege shouldn't be predicated on luck, and that all too often, the luckiest among us choose to hoard their wealth. As a writer, I do my best to bring attention to this kind of disparity. It is a small gesture, but it is well-intended. When we come back, write peaches and the risks of self-reliance. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. I'm Roxane Gay. Our first story was about a privileged woman ignoring her family's impoverished past, and this next one is about someone who can't avoid her penniless present. The protagonist is not a refugee, but she is estranged from her American home. With her family threatened, she must take a risk to prove she's a genuine provider. The story, Anyone Can Do It, was written by Manuel Munoz. He's published two short story collections— Zigzagger, and The Faith Healer of Olive Avenue, as well as a novel, What You See in the Dark. The performer reading our story was a regular on Chicago Fire and Chicago PD, and stars in the series Hightown. Though this performance was recorded away from a crowd, at our actor's home, it doesn't take away from the quiet wallop of the story's final twist. Please enjoy Monica Raymond reading Anyone Can Do It by Manuel Munoz. Her immediate concern was money. It was a Friday when the men didn't come home from the fields. And true, sometimes the men wouldn't return until late. The headlights of the neighborhood work truck turning the corner. The men drunk and laughing from the bed of the pickup. And true, other women might have thought first about the green immigration vans prowling the fields and the orchards all around the valley, ready to take away the men they might not see again for days if good luck held or even longer, if they found no luck at all. When the street felt silent at dusk, the screen doors of the dark houses opened up one by one, and the shadows of the women came to sit out on the concrete steps. Delfina was one of them, but her worry was a different sort. She didn't know these women yet, and these women didn't know her. She and her husband and her little boy had been in the neighborhood for only a month, renting a two-room house at the end of the street with a narrow screened-in back porch, a tight bathroom with no insulation, and a mildewed kitchen. There was only a dirt yard for the boy to play in, and they had to drive into the town center to use the payphone to call back to Texas, where Delfina was from. They had been here just long enough for Delfina's husband to be welcomed along to the fieldwork, the pay split among all the neighborhood men, the work truck 
chugging away from the street before the sun even rose. When Delfina saw the first shadow rise in defeat, she thought of the private turmoil these other women felt in the absence of their men, and she knew that her own house held none of that. Just days before the end of June, with the rent due soon, she thought that all the other women on the front steps might believe that nothing could be any different until the men returned, that nothing could change until they arrived back from wherever they had been taken. She was alert to her own worry, to be sure, but she felt a resolve that seemed absent in the women putting out last cigarettes and retreating behind the screen doors. She watched as the street went dark past sundown and the neighborhood children were sent inside to bed. The longer she held her place on her front steps, the stronger she felt. From the far end of the street, one of the women emerged from a porch and Delfina saw her moving along toward her house, guided by a few dim porch lights and the wan blur of television sets glowing through the windows. When the woman, tall and slender, arrived at her front yard, Delfina could make out the long sleeves of her husband's work shirt and wisps of her hair falling from her neighbor's bun. Buenas tardes, the woman said. Buenas tardes, Delfina answered. And, rather than invite her forward, she rose from the steps and met her at the edge of the yard. Sometimes they don't come back right away, the neighbor said in Spanish. But don't worry, they'll be back soon, all of them. If they take them together, they come back together. The woman extended her hand. Me llamo Liz, she said. Delfina, she answered. And as Liz emerged fully out of the street shadow... Delfina saw a face about the same age as hers. Your house was empty for about three months, said Lys, before you arrived. That's a long time for a house around here, even for our neighborhood. Everything costs so much these days. It does, Delfina agreed. Was it expensive in Texas? Lys asked. Is that why you moved? Delfina looked at her placidly betraying nothing. She had not told this woman that she was from Texas, and she began to wonder what her husband might have said to the other men in the work truck. Your car, Lise said, pointing to the Ford Galaxy parked on the dirt yard. I noticed the Texas license plates when you first came. We drove it from Texas, Delfina answered. Oh, you're lucky your husband didn't take that car to the fields. They impound them, you know. And it's tough to get them back. The woman reminded Delfina of her sister back in Texas, who had always tried to talk her into things she didn't want to do. It was her sister who had told her that moving to California was a bad idea, and who had repeated terrible stories about the people who lived there, though she had never been there herself. Her sister had given all the possible reasons why she should stay except for the true one, that she had not wanted to be left alone with their mother. My husband says they stop you if you don't have California plates, Delfina said. So I try not to drive the car unless I have to. On the long drive from Texas, she had learned that strangers only approached when they needed something. She could refuse Lise money if she asked, but it would be hard to deny her a ride into town if she needed it. Even in the dark, 
She could tell that Lise was coming up with an answer to that. She had turned her head to look at the galaxy, her face back in shadow under the streetlight. Gus is expensive, Lise said, drawn out and final, as if she had realized that whatever she had wanted to request was no longer worth asking about. But she kept her sight on the car and said nothing more, which only convinced Delfina that she would, in time, come out with it. We got our work truck very cheap before the gas line started, and we didn't realize how much it would take to keep it filled up. Did you have to stand in line for gas in Texas? We did, said Delfina. It was like that everywhere, I heard. Mm, not everywhere, said Liz. They tell me that Mexico is okay again, but family will always tell you whatever they need to get you home, huh? <laughs> Where are you from? Guanajuato. And you? From Texas, said Delfina. Where we drove from, she added, as if to remind her. The old man who used to live in your house a long time ago was from Texas. From the, uh, the Matamoros side. Is that right? He passed away a while back, but he was too old to work by then. He always said he wished he could go back to Mexico because he was all alone. Pobrecito. Sometimes I think he had the right idea. It's a terrible thing to be alone. If she knew this woman better, if this woman knew her better, Delfina thought, she would tell her that this was only half true, that it was hard to make a go of it alone, but that it could be just as hard to live in a house without kindness. But then you two came. With your niño, how old is he? Yeah, he's four. Ah, oh, he's so little, said Lise. How sweet. My girl's a little older, ten. I, I think I've seen her before, said Delfina, though she didn't remember. Children never understand the circumstances, said Lise. No, they don't, said Delfina. I don't think they should ever learn that. It's part of life said Lise. Listen, our rent is due on the first, she said. Yours too, no? Delfina didn't want to say yes, not even in the dark. But only no would mean this wasn't true. Lise looked over at the galaxy. I learned something the last time this happened that I had to keep working instead of waiting. It's not good to run no one money. Delfina could hear her voice press in the same way her sisters used to. Her sister who talked and talked, who thought that the more you talked, the more convincing you sounded. Her husband had said that anyone who asked too hard about anything really wanted something else. What would you say about taking the car out to the peach orchards and splitting what we get? I'd pay for half the gas. Oh, I, I don't know, Delfina began. My girl is old enough to care for your niño, if you trust her, Lisa offered. It could be just us, she said. If you don't want to bring along anyone else in the neighborhood, it could be just us. I, I don't know, Delfina hesitated, though she knew she could not say that more than twice, and she steeled herself to say no. I know the farmer, said Lise. We could go out to the orchards and pick up a few rows before he gives all our work away. I'll have to think about it, said Delfina. My husband doesn't like me driving the car. She remembered what her neighbor had said about impoundment, 
and she tried that. If they take the car... You're from Texas, said Lise. But she pressured no further. Her face was clear and open, but the way she said these words stung, as if being from one side or the other meant anything about how easy or hard things could be. It was none of any stranger's business, but Delfina's husband had never allowed her to work, and she knew what women like Lise thought about women like her. I, I don't know the first thing about working in the fields anyway, Delfina said. She tried to say it in a way that meant it was the truth and not at all reply to what Lise had said about Texas. It's easy but hard at the same time, said Lise. Anyone can do it. It's just that no one really wants to. I'll have to think about it, said Delfina. I understand, Lise answered, and backed a step out to the street, her arms folded in a way that Delfina recognized from her sister, the way she had stood on the Texas porch in defeat and resignation. Que pases buenas noches, Lise said, and began walking away before Delfina had a chance to reply in kind. When she did, she felt her voice carry along the street, as if everyone else on the block had overheard their refusal and she went back into the house with an unexpected sense of shame. Very early the next morning, after a restless night, Delfina woke her little boy from the pallet of blankets on the living room floor. We're going into town, she told him, when Kiki resisted her with grogginess as she struggled to get him dressed. When they reached the TGNY, she deposited Kiki in the toy aisle without saying a word, and marched to the payphone at the back of the store to call her mother in Texas. He left you, her mother's voice said over the line. Nothing keeps a good father from his family. They took other men in the neighborhood too, Delfina said. He wasn't alone. How many times did he go out to work in Texas and he came home just fine, huh? I told you that you shouldn't have gone. Your sister was absolutely right. How's the Nino? Is he dreaming about his father yet? That's how you'll know if he's coming back or not. Did you hear that? She interrupted her mother, dropping another coin. I, I don't have much time left. Why are you calling, huh? For money? Ah, of course you're calling for money. If he's a good father, he'll find a way to send some if he can't get back. If you were a good mother, Delfina began. But it came as hardly even a whisper and she lacked the real courage to talk back this way, to summon the memory of her white-haired father who had died years ago and taken with him, it seemed, any criticism of his late-night ways. Her voice was lost anyway, as her mother yelled out to trade the phone over to Delfina's sister, and in the moment when the exchange left them all suspended in static, Delfina hung up the receiver. She had not even given them the address for the Western Union office, and she would have to apologize, she knew, when the worst of the financial troubles would be upon her. But for the moment, she relished how she had left her older sister calling into the phone, staring back incredulous at her mother. Come along, she said to Kiki when she went to collect him from the toy aisle, where he had quietly scattered the pieces of a board game without the notice of the clerk. He started to cry out in protest, now that he was in the cool and quiet of the five and dime, and she was pulling him away from the bins of marbles and plastic army men. 
Delfina imagined the footsteps of the clerk coming to check on the commotion, and in her hurry to shove the board game back onto the shelf, she let slip the payphone dimes, Kiki frozen in surprise by their clatter before he stooped to pick them up. Come along, she said, letting him have the dimes. Ice cream, she whispered in encouragement, and led on by this suggestion, he followed her out of the store. It was only right to reward him with the promised treat, and she led him down the street to the drugstore with its ice cream stand visible from the large front window. She had a single folded dollar bill in her pocket, and she handed it to the clerk, foolish, she thought, to be spending so frivolously. But her boy didn't need to know those troubles. Delfina led him to the little park across the street from the town bank. He gripped his cone tightly, and his other hand held the fist of dimes. She motioned him to pocket the change for safekeeping. Put it away, she said, sitting on one of the benches. But her little boy kept them in his grip, and so she patted his pocket more firmly to encourage him. And that's when she felt it. A hard little object that she knew instantly was something he had stolen from the toy aisle. Let me see, she said, or I will take away your coins. Kiki struggled against her, smearing some of the ice cream on his pants, which finally distressed him into actual tears. Yeah, yeah, Delfina said, calming him, and fished what was in his pocket, a little green car, metal, and surprisingly heavy. Her little boy was inconsolable, and the Saturday shoppers along the sidewalk stopped to look in their direction. Shh, 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 she told him, there, there and took the time to show him the car in the palm of her hand before she slipped it back into his pocket. Later, when they rounded the corner back into the neighborhood, she saw Lise out in her dirt yard. Buenos dias, Delfina greeted her. She wanted to keep walking, but Lise made her way toward her, and she knew she would have to stop and listen, much like the time in Arizona on the trip out here, when she had accidentally locked eyes with a man at a gas station and he had walked over to rap on the window of the galaxy and beg for some change. Good things we didn't go to the archers after all, said Lys. I would have felt terrible if your car had stalled out there. No, Delfina began. I, I, uh, the more she stumbled, the less it makes sense to make up any story at all. There was no reason to be anything but honest. The car is fine, she said. I just, I just wanted him to walk a bit. We got ice cream. For breakfast, Lise said, looking down at Kiki and smiling. What a Saturday! The morning sweat matted her hair down on her forehead, and she wore no gloves, her fingers a bit raw from the metal handle of the hoe. But she was cheerful with Kiki, recognizing his exhaustion. Her daughter, Delfina realized, was not out helping her, but inside the cool of the house and she took this as a sign of the same propensity for sacrifice that she believed herself to hold. I've thought about it, Delfina said, though she really hadn't. I think it's a good idea. <gasps> oh, I'm glad, said Lise. I wish I had said so last night. We could have put in a day's work, but I'm happy to go tomorrow. Tomorrow's Sunday, said Lise. And when Delfina put her hand up to her mouth as if she'd forgotten, as if she might change her mind, Lise moved in closer to her, looking down at Kiki. But work never waits, she said. El día de Dios, 
said Delfina. I didn't even think of it. People work, said Lise. Don't worry about it. We can wait until Monday. That way the children can be at school. Like I told you, my daughter is old enough to watch him if you trust her. I leave her alone sometimes, or we, we can bring them out with us and stay longer. Delfina could make out the shadow of a child watching from behind the screen door and catching her glance behind her shoulder, Lise turned to look. She called her forth, and her daughter stepped out. A girl very tall for ten years old. This is our neighbor, Lise explained. And we'll need you to watch her little boy tomorrow. Will you do that? The girl nodded, and she stuck out her hand to Delfina in awkward politeness. What's your name? Delfina asked. Irma, the girl said, very quietly, her voice deferential. She had very small eyes that she squinted, as if in embarrassment, and Delfina wondered if she needed glasses but was too afraid to say. We can trust you, can't we? said Lise, to take care of the little boy. If I leave you some food, you can feed him, can't you? Oh, I, I can leave them something. No, don't worry, said Lise. I can leave something easy to fix, and you can bring out something for us in the orchard. I have a little ice chest to keep everything out of this sun. After Lofina nodded her head in agreement, Lise made as if to go back to her yard work. At dawn, then, Lise said, I'll bring everything we need. For the rest of the day... Delfina was restless, anxious, that every noise on the street might signal the return of the men. To have them come back would mean the lull of normalcy, of what had been and would continue to be, just when she was on the brink of doing something truly on her own. At dawn, she roused Kiki from the blankets strewn on the living room floor and poured him some cereal. He blinked against the harshness of the kitchen light at such an early hour, surprised at his mother wearing one of his father's long-sleeve work shirts, and even more surprised by the knock at the door. Lise stood there, her daughter behind her. Buenos dias, Delfina said, and waved the girl Irma inside. She poured her a bowl of cereal, too, and Irma sat quietly at the table without having to be told to do so. Thank you for taking care of him, Delfina said. We'll be back in the middle of the afternoon. She knew she didn't have to say more than that. Trusted that Lise had spoken with the same motherly sense of warning that she used. Still, it was only now, on the brink of leaving them alone for the day, that she wished she had asked Kiki if he had been dreaming about his father, if he might have communicated something about what was true for him while he slept. Lise showed her the gloves and the work knives, and then the two costales to hold the fruit, a sturdy one of thick canvas with a hearty shoulder strap and a smaller one of nylon mesh. Her other hand balanced a water jug and a small ice chest where Delfina put in a bundle of foil-wrapped bean tacos that would keep through the heat of the day. In the car, Lise pointed her south of town and toward the orchards, and Delfina drove along. They kept going south, the orchard endless, Cars parked over on the side of the road and pickers approaching foremen, work already getting started, even though the dawn's light hadn't yet seeped into the trees. Up there, Lise said, where a few cars had already lined up and several workers had gathered around a man sitting on the open tailgate of his work truck. Wait here, she said. Before Delfina could ask why, 
Lys had exited, approaching the man with a handshake. He seemed to recognize her and then looked back at Delfina in the car. Lise finished what she needed to say, and the man took one more look at Delfina and then pointed down to the rose. Lise motioned her to get out of the car. He says he'll give us two rows for now, and we do what we can. If we're fast, he'll give us more. And he's letting us use a ladder free of charge. That's kind of him. Ah, they charge sometimes, Lise said. She took one end of a heavy-looking wooden ladder, the tripod hinged rusty and the rungs worn smooth in the middle. So, 50-50? Half and half, Delfina agreed. I can pick the tops and you can do the bottoms if you're afraid of heights, or you can walk the costales back to the crates for weighing. Give them your name if you want to, but make sure that the foreman tells you exactly how much we brought in. They did a few rounds like this, Delfina taking the costales back to the road to have them weighed. The morning moved on, a brighter white light coming into the orchard as they got closer till noon. As they picked the trees near clean, they moved deeper and deeper into the orchard, and the walk back to the crates took longer, Lise almost lost to her among the leaves. They had not quite finished the row when the sun finally peaked directly overhead and their end of the orchard sank into quiet. Delfina let out a sigh upon her return. I should have brought the ice chest while I was there. I can get it, said Lise. You've walked enough. She came down with the half-empty nylon costal and pulled a few more peaches from the bottom boughs as Delfina rested. She started walking toward the road, then turned around. The keys, she said, and held out her hand. Delfina watched her go. Lise walked quickly with the nylon costal dangling over her shoulder. Maybe the weight of Lise's work was all in her arms from stretching and pulling and not heavy and burning in the thighs like hers. Delfina sat in the higher bank of the orchard row, catching her breath, massaging her upper legs and resting. It was a Sunday, she remembered, and Lise had been right after all. People did work on this day, even if it felt as tranquil and lonely as Sundays always did, here among the trees the leaves growing more and more still, the orchard quiet and then quieter. Delfina looked down the row to soak in that blessed quiet, and the longer she looked, the emptier and emptier it became. The empty row where, she realized, Lise had disappeared like a faraway star. She started back toward the road. The walk was long, and she couldn't hear a sound, not of the other workers, not other cars rumbling past the orchards, just the endless trees and her feet against the heavy dirt of the fields. The day's weariness slowed her and made the trees impossible to count. But she walked on, resolute, the gray of the road coming into view. She emerged onto the shoulder of the road and saw the foreman and the foreman's truck and a few other cars. But the galaxy was gone. Excuse me, she said, approaching the foreman, who seemed surprised to see her, though he had seen her all morning, noting down the weight of the peaches she had brought in, saying the numbers twice, tallied under the name Arellano. You're still here, the foreman said, very kindly, as if the fact was a surprise to him too, and his face grew into a scowl 
like the faces of the white men Delfina had encountered in Texas, the ones who always seemed surprised that she spoke English. But where their faces had been steely and uncaring, his softened with concern, as if he recognized that he had made a serious mistake. I thought you were gone, he said. We were supposed to split. She held a hand to her head and looked up the road one way and then the other, as if the car were on its way back, Lise having gone only to the small country store to fetch colder drinks. Arellano, the foreman said, tapping his ledger. Arellano was the first name on the list, he said. I paid it out about a half hour ago. That was my car, the Fina said, as if that would be enough for him to know what to do next. But the foreman only stared back at her. It was my husband's car, she said, because that was how she saw it now, what her husband would say about its loss if he ever made it back. She told me that you two were sisters, the foreman said. If he only knew, Delphina thought, her real sister back in Texas, the mere mention made her turn back toward the orchard and walk into the row. She could sense the foreman walking to the row's opening to see where she was going, and when she reached the ladder, she folded it down and heaved it best as she could, its legs cutting a little trough behind her as she dragged it back to the road. You didn't have to do that, the foreman said. You did right by letting us use it, Delphina said. It's only fair. Other pickers had approached the foreman's truck and he attended to them, though he kept looking over at Delphina now and then, his face sunken in concern. None of the workers looked at her, and she let go of the idea of asking any of them for a ride back into town. She sat in the dirt under the shade of a peach tree and watched while the foreman flipped out small wads of cash as the workers began to quit for the afternoon. When the last of them shook hands with the foreman and began to leave, she rose to help him load all of the wooden ladders back onto the truck. He accepted her help and opened the door of the truck cab, motioning for her to get in. They drove slowly back into town, the ladders clattering with every stop and start, the weight of them shifting and settling. Neither of them said a word. But before the orchards gave way back to the houses... The foreman cleared his throat and spoke. <clears throat> I, uh, I, I think it's the first time I ever had two women come out alone like that. But I was raised to think that anybody can do anything and you don't ask questions just because something isn't normal. Even just a little bit of work is better than none at all. And I kept thinking about the story she told me that you two were sisters and that your husbands had gotten thrown over the border. You can tell a lot by a wife who wants to work as hard as her husband, you know what I mean? I wasn't sure you could finish two rows, just the both of you, but you kept coming and coming with those sacks, and that's how I knew you had kids to feed. At the four-way intersection, just before the last mile into town, the foreman fished into his pocket and pulled out a bill. Take it, he said. He handed it to her, a 20, and almost pushed it into Delphina's hands as he started to turn, needing to keep the steering wheel steady. The bill fluttered in her fingers from the breeze of the open passenger window, but the truck wasn't going to pick up much more speed. She wouldn't lose it. 
Thank you, she said. It's not your fault, he said. And I'm not defending her for what she did, but I believe any story that anybody tells me. You can't be to blame if you got faith in people. You're right, she agreed. And though she didn't have to say it, she followed it with the words of blind acceptance before she could stop herself. I understand, she said. And it was not worth explaining that she really didn't. Where should I take you? asked the foreman. She didn't hesitate. There's a little store right near Gold Street, just across the tracks, she said. If you could stop, just, just so I can get something for my boy. Of course, he said. Though there could have been no other possible way to respond, since Delfina's request came with a small hiccup of tears, which she quickly swallowed away as the truck pulled into the store's small lot. She brought a package of bologna and a loaf of bread to the register and fished out three bottles of cola from the case at the front counter. The clerk broke the twenty into a bundle of ones, and she held them with the temporary solace of pretending there would be money enough for the days ahead and that money was going to be the least of her worries anyway. She directed the foreman just a couple more blocks. There, she said, pointing to her house. And she wasn't surprised to see Kiki sitting there on the front steps, all alone. There he is, waiting for his mama, the foreman said, as he pulled up, and Kiki looked back at them, with neither curiosity nor glee. She handed the foreman the third cola bottle. You know, he said, It'll work out in the end. Sisters always end up doing the right thing. She'll be back. You'll see. What story had he figured out for himself, Delfina wondered, after she hadn't bothered to correct him about Lise not being her sister, and she decided that this also mattered little in the end, how he would explain this to his wife back home. She would not explain this to her husband when he came back. All her husband would care about was what happened to the galaxy. And that would be enough of a story. She might even tell her husband about the luck of the $20 bill, but she would hold private the detail of the ring on the foreman's finger. She would hold in her mind what it felt like to be treated with a faithful kindness. Thank you, she said, and descended from the truck cab, nodding her head goodbye. On the steps... Kiki eyed the tall bottles of cola in her hand. She lodged one of the bottles under the water spigot to pop the cap, a trick she had seen her husband do. She handed that bottle to Kiki, and he took it with both hands, full of thirst or greed for the sweetness she couldn't tell. She took some of the bread loaf and the bologna for herself and offered him a bite, knowing he wouldn't eat one of his own. He was hungry, and this was how she knew that Irma was gone too. She was a girl who did what she was told, and Delfina didn't blame her. Kiki crowded close to her knees, even in the heat of the afternoon, and so she popped the cap of the second bottle to take a sip herself and asked her little boy of no words to tell where he thought the older girl had gone and where he dreamed his father was. Digame, she said, asking him to tell her a whole story. But Kiki had already taken the little metal car from his pocket, and he was showing her, starting from the crook of his arm, 
how a car had driven away slowly, slowly, and on out past the edge of his little hand and out of their lives forever. That was Anyone Can Do It by Manuel Munoz, performed by Monica Raymond. As maybe you noticed, these stories feature a fair amount of manipulation and callowness, but the most honest characters also come across as the most resilient. Maybe that is the survival tip to keep in your back pocket. And if you have survival skills that would help the rest of us, why not share them? You can find Selected Shorts on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and we would love to hear from you. I am Roxanne Gay. Thank you for joining me on Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Special thanks to longtime listeners Jan Gartenberg and Don Kroll from Dallas, Texas, who have been listening to Selected Shorts since 1988. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.